Welcome. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Thank you so much for coming. It's just awesome to be able to open up the Word with you guys to see uh, what God has to say. You know, I don't have much anything to say, but we know this book that we carry, the Word of God, has a lot to say, and it does not return any void. It uh, penetrates our heart, piercing soul and division of our soul and spirit. So powerful, powerful Word, and we look forward to what God has to say uh, this morning. We're in the book of Judges. Uh, we're almost done with the book of Judges. We just got two more weeks after this weekend, and then we'll start the book of Ruth afterwards. Uh, but as we're going through the book of Judges, you're um, seeing that um, Israel, um, it's, it's a dark time for Israel. Everybody's doing right in their own eyes, and it gets dark. Um, but as the book starts, uh, you see some little bit of light um, after a judge comes, because he's a good judge, and then Israel follows God. And then the next judge comes, and, and, and it's good, but then they start declining again. They start declining. So it's a very difficult time that is actually going into even a more difficult time for Israel because they're starting to spiral into major oppression, extreme defiance into God. In fact, spiral into a dark hole. I had somebody ask me, I wonder what you're going to do at the end of the book because it's so dark, it's so ugly, and... Uh, I said, I already preached the end of the book. If you remember, that was the first one, just to get your attention of Israel's state. Well, we're starting to move towards this major, major decline. Every judge that comes, he lifts it up, but the next judge comes, he lifts it up, but then they start going decline, 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 decline. And we're now we're on the last judge, which is Samson. And uh, after Samson, you're going to see a major black hole that people are going to go into, it, God's people are going to go into as a result of Samson's success or lack of it. We're spending three weeks on Samson, and I just want you to know uh, where we've been. Last week, uh, we talked about Samson through uh, the lens of God, when God looks at the earth and, and uh, uh, what God is thinking um, and how he is using Samson. And today we're going to talk about Samson through the lens of us, uh, through the lens of a human being. And, and then next week, we're going to talk about Samson through the lens of, through the lens of Christ, and we'll unfold, um, unfold Samson and Christ and bring some comparisons and, and some analogies there. But a little bit of review uh, from last week. Um, Israelites uh, brought, received oppression. They were handed over to, uh, by their sin. They're handed over by God to their sin and to other nations. And these nations oppressed them. We see that there was massive taxation that took place when these judge, before these judges came. We see that there was bondage. We see there was enslavement. We see that there was brutality. We see that there was murder. We see that there was rape, abuse of children. Uh, when these other nations um, took them, they literally abused God's people. They destroyed God's people. So what did God's people do? They, they cried out. But when we move to Samson, we don't see them crying out. We see a, a different Thing taking place. They're not being abused by the Philistines under the Philistines' oppression. Um, they, in fact, it doesn't even say the Philistines are extremely cruel to them. What's happening is that there's intermingling going on. Israel and the Philistines are starting to go like this. They're still being ruled, still being oppressed, but it's acceptable to God's people to be ruled and be oppressed by these Philistines. They're also intermarrying as well. What takes place when you intermarry? There's a, there's a line that's moving towards the Messiah. And when people, when you have God's people, God's people are supposed to marry God's people in the Old Testament, even now in the New Testament. But there's intermarrying that's taking place. You see these cultures start to mold. You start to see interpenetration take place. You start seeing economical ties start to happen. According to historians, this is a, 
extremely dangerous time, one of the most dangerous times for God's people, for Israel. And as a reason why is because as you're intermingling, God, the creator, started getting removed from the nation of Israel, from God's people. Now, if God was removed, what takes place? Is there's no salvation for them, which means there's no salvation for us. In fact, even some historians said if the assimilation continued to take place with the Israelites and the Philistines, that what would happen is one generation, two generation, God's name would just be pushed out, would actually just disappear. But God wanted to do something. He wanted to send somebody that was set apart to set the nation of Israel apart from the Philistines. God wanted to send somebody who was set apart to set the nation apart from the Philistines, and his name was Samson. When you look at the story of Samson, you think strength. That's the first thing you think of. Oh, Samson and his strength. But through every fibers of the story, the concept of being set apart is what is carrying the entire story. It is what is carrying the entire story. Because if Samson can remain set apart with his strength, production will take place. And the book of Judges would not look as horrific at the end. If Samson can remain set apart like he was called to be set apart, there'd be a different story in the book of Judges at the very end. So I want to look at this concept set apart and see how much Samson was set apart. Samson was set apart by God. Number one, it talks about in his birth, Samson was a Nazarite, set apart by God. Now what does set apart mean? It means holy. What does holy mean? It means set apart. So whenever you hear these words set apart, um, I mean holy, you can put set apart to it. So when you see in First Peter, it says, be holy for I am holy. That means be set apart because I am set apart. Uh, what does Nazarite mean? It means set apart on steroids. I mean, it's like take set apart to a whole different level. Um, the Nazarite had different restrictions that were even higher than the priests. In other words, when you look at a Nazarite, you'll be, or you look into the community, you will see that person is a Nazarite. Why? Because he was like way set apart. He stuck out in a crowd. He stuck out in a nation. He stuck out everywhere. And the way he stuck out was three additional laws. These three additional laws that are given only to the Nazarite made him stick out. These laws were then given to Samson. Judges 13 is speaking to his parents. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any, any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come up on his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistine. Well, what are these additional rules that make him stand out beyond anybody else in the entire country? Uh, letter A, these were the additional rules that he had. A Nazarite could not drink wine, vinegar, grape juice, or eat grapes and raisins. These were additional rules that if you did not do this, they absolutely stuck out and said, that man is called to do something. Why? Because everybody drank wine. If you look at the two blessings that God gave, what are the two blessings that God gave to human beings? You know, it's wine and sex. You go, what, God gave wine as a blessing? What happens to human beings? The worst thing that's ever happened to human beings. In other words, the destruction of humanity is on, on what? 
wine and sex. The two greatest blessings that God gave is actually the greatest destructions that has ever taken place to human beings. So wine and sex is not bad. But what happens, the abuse just completely destroys people, destroys families, destroys the nations, destroys everything. God's trying to give human beings the blessings, and we take the blessings and we completely twist them and ruin ourselves. But the Nazarite is supposed to even take a step level, a step higher and not touch wine, not touch grape juice, not touch grapes. Don't even touch raisins. There's three Nazarites that were under these vows, these vows according to scripture. One was Samson, one was Samuel, and one was John the Baptist. They never touched wine, never touched grapes, never touched, um, and never touched any raisins. That's just an exception to what took place. Number six, Two through three gives the laws of the Nazarite in the Old Testament. When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite is to dedicate himself to the Lord. Completely dedicated, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink no vinegar, whether made or wine or strong drink. Nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. That's not applies to everybody. It just applies to the Nazarite. Again, set apart on steroids. The priests were set apart, but they were, the Nazarite was set apart even more than the priests. So he's supposed to make all these other laws, but then also keep these as well. Letter B, Nazarites must not touch a dead body, even if it's family. It's not everybody's law. It's not even the priest's law. But it was the Nazarite's law in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Number 6, 6 explains it. All the days of separation <clears throat> to the Lord... He shall not go near to a dead person. That was the law that was given to a Nazarite, and therefore it was a law that was given to Samson. He is going to be set apart, and he's going to be recognizably set apart as a result of these laws. Number C, Nazarite must not cut their hair. This was the largest item that set them apart. And the reason why is because you can recognize them in a crowd. In other words, you look at the entire crowd. If there's a Nazarite here, um, you would have hair to the floor. You would have a mop that would literally be behind your head because you never cut your head once. So we could look around the room and say, oh, there's a Nazarite. There is no Nazarites in the New Testament, by the way. But if back in the old days, back in the ancient times, the Nazarite walked around with a mop that was behind him because he had never, ever, ever cut his hair. Number six, five. All the days of the vow of separation, no razor, shall pass over the head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow very long. So we know that Samson, uh, Samuel never cut his hair, and we know that John the Baptist never cut his hair, as these are the three Nazarites in the ancient times that were mentioned in the Old Testament. These three additional rules... Samson didn't obey. <laughs> Samson, did, they didn't control him. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't even have anything to do. He just couldn't completely fit right into the crowd. These three additional rules, Samson really didn't give a rip about. Well, what did Samson obey? He's a Nazarite. This supposed to stick out. What did he obey through his story? This is what he obeyed. Number two, Samson was set apart by God. But yeah, he was ruled by his passion. What is the definition of passion? Passion is strong and barely controllable, unbearably controllable emotion is what passion means in the dictionary. 
It is a drive. It is a hunger. It is a lust. It is an ambition. It is a determination that is literally set on fire. He is supposed to be ruled by God's laws and the vows that he took so he'll be set apart. Instead, passion is running him. Judges 14, 1 says, The Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of the relatives, of our relatives, or among of our own people, that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Let you know that if my daughters talk to me like that, I I don't care how old they are, I'd say we need to go back behind the barn and we need to get a lesson um, to be taken care of. And a spanking would definitely take place. But you see how he's treating his father and mothers. But you also see how he's treating a woman. I see a woman. Get her for me. And then you see the words, she looks good to me. What is that? If you look in Hebrew, what it is, it's like, I want her because of my desires. He's not thinking about love. I want her because I want her. There's a hunger, there's a desire, there's a lust, and I want to take possession of her. Therefore, mom and dad, you get her for me. This is just how he speaks. He's ruled by passion. Samson was set apart by God, but yet he was consumed by desire. So what does he do? He goes to Timnah to get this woman, just how he speaks. And on his way to get this woman, it says in verse 14, 5, that he approached a vineyard and a lion approached him. First of all, he's a Nazarite. What does that mean? That means he's not supposed to be in the vineyard. <laughs> you're not supposed to be in the vineyard. You're a Nazarite. You're not supposed to come close to wine. You're not supposed to come close to anything. He doesn't care if he's in the vineyard. It doesn't make a difference. A lion then approaches him where he's not supposed to be. So what does he do? He, he kills the lion. We know the story. Kills the lion. Why? Because he wants the woman. Kills the lion, then goes to Tim, then gets the woman. Now he gets the woman. Where does he go back? He comes back through the vineyard. We don't even know this woman's name because that's all she's called. It's a woman because Samson's the one that's speaking in the story. Gets the woman and comes back. And how does he come back? He comes through the vineyard. How do you know that he's going through the vineyard that he's not supposed to go? Because he sees the dead lion again. And when he sees the dead lion, what does he do? It says very specifically that he moved the dead lion over. He's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to touch the dead lion. Remember, he is somebody that's not supposed to touch dead bodies. He moved the dead lion over because he saw a bee, uh, a honeycomb that was in the lion. So he moved him over, but he's a Nazarite, not supposed to touch it. And then he grabbed some honey. Again, he has no respect for the Nazarite law. Remember, he's supposed to obey every other law, but he's supposed to have some respect for the Nazarite law, so he will stand out, but he doesn't have any. So what does he go back? He he goes back to marry the woman from Timnah. That's all she is, marry the woman from Timnah. During the process of their wedding, there is this bridal, uh, a bridegroom feast in the process of the wedding. Well, bridegroom feast is like a bachelor party that takes place in the process of this wedding. Um, this bridegroom feast has lots of drinking. He's not supposed to drink. He's a Nazarite. He's supposed to stick out in front of everybody, but he's not sticking out. He's drinking, he's partying, and what does he do? He starts to tell a riddle. And just to make the story fast, he tells this riddle and says, I bet you can never figure this riddle out to the 30 people, bridegroom people, that he was talking with. And guess what takes place? Those 30 people 
cheat. And when they cheat, they figured the riddle out. Well, Samson put a bet on the riddle. says, if you can figure it out, I'll give you 30 lemon garments and 30 sets of clothes from the Philistines. Well, after they cheated and figured it out, Samson had to go get the 30 linen garments and 30 set of clothes from the Philistines instead of them. Samson was burning with anger when they figured the riddle out. So what does he do? He leaves this wedding feast and he goes and he gets the 30 linen garments and the 30 sets of clothes off of people. People don't just hand them their clothes. He's the strongest man in the world. He just takes them and then he brings back to the 30 people that, um, that had um, that he made the bargain with. Here's number four. Samson was set apart by God, but yet he was completely bound by anger. Bound by anger. We see that he took the clothes, he took the lemon, and he did it by anger. And then he went to his father's house. And as he's going to his father's house, you can see him stew in verse, four, or verse 19 of chapter 14. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. It's not just anger, it is hot anger back to his father's house. Now, when he went back to his father's house, his father had news for him. Do you know what his father told him? His father said, since you married the woman from Timnah and then left to go get those garments, your new father-in-law gave your woman from Timnah to your best man. Probably not the best thing to say to an angry man, nor the strongest man in the world. But that's the news he got when he got back from his father's house. So as soon as he got that news, what does he do? Fuels with anger, goes to his father-in-law's house and says, give me my woman. Because that's the way Samson speaks. And his father-in-law says, I gave your woman to your best man since you left. And what is Samson going to do? Strongest man in the world, filled with anger. He's going to release his anger. How does he release his anger? He goes out and he grabs 300 foxes. After he grabs 300 foxes, he tells all, ties all those foxes' tails together. He's fast, he's quick, grabs them all, puts a, um, a torch that is inside him, lit the torch, and the foxes ran, ran around um, the Philistine area, consuming all their grain and consuming all their vineyards that are taking place. His anger is driving him, and he doesn't want to stop. He wants to let it out. In the process of letting it out, he is killing the grain. He's killing the vineyard. Well, if the Philistines lost their grain, if the Philistines lost their vineyard, what are they going to do? They're going to make Samson pay. Well, how do they make Samson pay? They go back to his father-in-law, and they go back to his wife who married his best man, and they said, we heard that Samson is the one that did that because of his anger towards you. Therefore, they killed him. They killed the father-in-law, and they killed his wife. Well, what happens? Samson, again, fuels with anger. And as a process of fueling with anger, it says that he slaughtered many. We don't know how many, but he slaughtered many. One man slaughtering many. After he slaughtered them, he ended up going to the cave. And then the Philistines and Israelites said, we've got an issue on our hand. We have a strong, strong man that is completely fueled with anger. What are we going to do to control this person? Philistines wanted him dead. Israel just wanted to get rid of him because he was messing everything up. So 3,000 Israelites said we need to confront Samson. Now, it just shows how strong he is because if you're going to confront one man, it usually takes maybe five to confront one man if you're going to look at a fight. But when you take 3,000, it said 3,000 camped before they had the conversation. 
After 3,000 camped, they went up to Samson that was in this cave. And when he came out of this cave, they said that the Philistines wanted him. And they didn't know what response from Samson was going to be. But Samson was in charge because he was the strongest man in the world at the time. And what did he do? He says, what I want you to do is I want you to tie me up. But before you tie me up, I want to make sure that you know one thing. You don't do one thing is that you don't kill me. Because if you try to kill me, then I'll just kill all of you. (laughs) Because my anger is hot right now. And I am tired of what is going on. And I am angry at the Philistines just because of all the things that have happened to take place. So they tie him up, 3,000 people, walk towards the thousands of Philistines. And here's Samson sitting in the middle, looking at the Philistines, can't stand them, wants to just completely let his anger out on them. And the, the Israel behind him, he's like, I don't even care about them. In the process of saying a donkey jawbone, broke the rope, took a donkey jawbone, and then he killed 1,000 Philistines. After he killed the 1,000 Philistines, which is not necessarily illegal for a Nazarite to do, but after he killed the 1,000 Philistines, it says that he heaped up the bodies. He's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to heap up the bodies. He's touching the dead bodies, and he starts to heap them up and say, so you see exactly who I am? Do you see exactly what I'm doing? Do you see my anger completely fuel inside of me, showing his anger off, saying, don't mess with me. I'm a person who is out of control because I'm bound by my anger. And then it says at the end of chapter 15, Samson was a judge for Israel for 20 years. Right in the middle of the story. Samson was a judge for 20 years. After all that took place, Samson was a judge for 20 years. What happened in those 20 years? I don't know exactly what happened, but we do know two things that happened during those 20 years. One of the two things is number five, Samson was set apart by God, but he was owned by sex. How do you know that he was owned by sex? Because right after the comment that he was a judge for 20 years, the next statement says this. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. What does that mean? You just don't go get a prostitute. What you do is you start to get addicted to the sexual act that takes place. And when you get addicted to the sexual act that takes place, you will take anything, anywhere, at any time. Sex is a growing thing that happens. And you can see that it's a growing thing is here because he doesn't even care anymore. Give me a prostitute. Give me a woman. I just want a woman. Not even thinking about her, just thinking specifically about sex. You'd have to grow in that. You just don't go out and get a prostitute. He has to grow in the process of this. He still had his strength because when he ended up going to Delilah, the Philistines circled the area that he was around. And as they were circling the areas around, they were in hiding. As in the sense that, yeah, we have peace with Samson. But they were communicating with Delilah, this prostitute. And as they're communicating with this prostitute, they're saying, find out his strength and we will pay you. What happens in a, just got to say it, a prostitute relationship is neither one of them care for each other. They use each other to gratify themselves. So what happens with the prostitute is I'm going to use Samson to get to gratify myself in regards to money, in regards to price, in regards to everything. And Samson's just using her specifically for sex. They're just using each other. So it's a very shallow relationship. What's she going to do? She's going to do it. Why? Because she's going to get some money from the Philistines. So she says, Samson, you see in the passage, tell me your strength. I want to know what your strength is. Now, if you read the passage, she's probably not doing it with clothes on because she is trying to get the answer from him. But as a result, he does give her an answer. He says, tie me in some fresh rope. 
and then you'll see my strength. When you see that take place, he then wakes up by the comment of Delilah saying, the Philistines are upon you. And when he wakes up, what happens? His ropes just automatically snap. Um, I believe that they automatically snapped as a result of being startled from Delilah. Samson, Samson, uh, the Philistines are upon you, and they snapped the ropes. He didn't fight the Philistines, just snapped the rope. And Delilah looks at him and says, well, that's not your strength. You've got to try again. So she tried again. Tie me up with new rope. Didn't work. Weave seven braids of my head, of my hair, into fabric on a loom and then put a, a pin in it. Samson, the Philistines are coming. Then he just stands up and he pulls the pin out. It's like, Samson, I'm asking for your strength, but you will not tell me your strength. I think the conversations that are taking place is the conversations on the bed of coercing him, of trying to get him to do it. Um, I, it was completely inappropriate as a process of being inappropriate. Samson was being tempted, but Samson was being molded inside the prostitute. It would be a molded, a molded emotionally, molded sexually, and then he ends up telling her his strength. Number six, Samson was set apart by God, but he was swallowed by culture. When we look at this story of Samson losing his strength, because the process of losing his strength is he's going to lose his hair. He told her that if you cut my hair. You, we think that it's just because that he was, um, he was uh, tempted. And in the process of temptation, he's the one that gave her the answer. I think there's a lot more than just being tempted by Delilah in the process of losing his strength and his, having his hair cut. Uh, this is what I believe that was that reason why he told her. I believe that he was tempted by Delilah. I believe that he wanted Delilah. He did not want her to leave. He did not want her to depart. But I believe that he was also tired of standing out. 20 years he was a judge. He stood out. Remember last week we said that nobody really liked him. Everybody just wanted to get rid of him. He had a mop of hair and he stood out. One person in the room. That person's called by God, set apart by God. And does he live like he's set apart by God? He's not living like he's set apart by God. I haven't lived like I've been set apart by God my whole life. I walk through vineyards. I touch dead bodies. I drink wine. I get drunk. I have sex. Every single law I'm willing to break and I break and I'm not set apart by God. But my hair still says that I am set apart by God. Believe that he was tired of standing out. Believe that he wanted the same thing that Israel wanted. He just wanted to be connected with the Philistines and just wanted peace. He just wanted peace with his culture. He's tired of seeing his culture move in and him standing out. It's like, can I just fit inside my culture and be the same specifically as my culture? He wanted a connection with his culture. His hair is the last thing that made him stand out. The last thing that set, that set him apart. Judges 16 says he told her this. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. And I shall become weak and be like any other man. We believe that in his heart of heart that Samson believes it and that all the power was, was in his hair. The power was never in his hair. 
The power was never in his hair. We see that all the way through Scripture. All the way through Scripture, the story of Samson, we see God filled him with the Holy Spirit, and then all of a sudden, power came apart. He was set apart by God, being used by God, and God would fill him with the Holy Spirit because he was set apart, and then be used. But he says, this is my strength. And as a result of saying, this is my strength, what does Delilah do? He shaves off the hair, but he believed that it was his strength. Look at this passage, because it almost shows that he might not have believed that it was part of his strength. And he said, the Philistines are upon you. She said, the Philistines are upon you. Delilah said those words. And he awoke from his sleep. And what did he said? I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. He's got to know that the mop is gone. I mean, she removed his hair while he was sleeping. And she says, the Philistines are upon you. Don't worry. Got it covered. Don't worry. I have it covered. I don't have my hair, but I have it covered. Take care of it. And then he says these words. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He lost his hair, but he did not know that God left him. Lost his hair, but did not know that God left him. He was a person that was supposed to stand out in front of culture. He's a person that's supposed to look like no other. He's a person that's supposed to act like no other. And he didn't all the way through life. And his last straw was his hair. And we know that it is then that the Lord left him. We don't know all the emotions that are going inside of Samson as he gave the answer. But there is a passage that we go back into Numbers that is very symbolic that says, Samson says, I want to give up and make peace with the Philistines like the rest of my country wants to make peace with the Philistines. And here's a symbolic passage. This is all the laws that are going on in number, Numbers. Now, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of the separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of the meeting. You will see that I have a whole bunch of verses that are cut out of this because there's a whole bunch of laws that take place. Here's some laws that are there. He shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb and uh, one, one male lamb a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering. Then 18, the Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair. When shall he shave his dedicated head of hair? When his separation is then fulfilled. He should shave his hair at the doorway of the tent of the meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of what? Of the peace offering. I just want to be like everybody else and I want peace. And as long as I stand out, there is not going to be any peace. God doesn't want peace. God doesn't want us to mold with the culture. But Samson was to the point that It's time for peace, and his hair was removed. Number seven, Samson was set apart by God, yet he was the exact representation of what the nation of Israel looked like at the time. Remember the mission that God wanted. I wanted somebody to stand out that looked like my man, to look like he had my mission, my heart, my laws, my vows, my passion, My drive, that's what I want. That one person to stand out. But as you look at the entire story of Samson, Samson 
We can throw stones at Samson and say, Samson's bad here, he's bad here, he's bad here. But he looked like just everybody else. He looked like exactly what the culture looked like in Israel at the time under the oppression of the Philistines. Molded into the culture after God says, won't you just stand out from the culture? He didn't. He molded into it. How does this apply to us? We as Christians are set apart by God. We are Christians are set apart by God. What does that mean? We are not on our own mission that we are on God's mission. That's what a Christian means. You are not on our own mission. We are on God's mission. It means we are not under our own rule. We're under God's rule. We're not supposed to follow our own laws that are inside of our hearts. We're supposed to follow God's laws that are in Scripture. That's what we're supposed to follow. We don't embrace our own desires. We embrace God's desires. We have lots of desires within. These are desires that are not supposed to be embraced. We're supposed to embrace God's desires. That is when somebody stands out. That's when we stick out. We are people who stick out or are called by God when we don't fear when there's, some, when we, there's something to be afraid about. We don't fear when there's something to be afraid about. We love when we actually shouldn't love. Culture doesn't love when they're not supposed to love. They hate when they're supposed to hate, and they love when they want to love. That's what takes place in the culture. That's what takes place with the defiance of God. But Christians are supposed to do that. They're supposed to stand out. We're not angry when we should be angry. We have peace when we shouldn't have peace. The whole world falling apart, but these Christians, they just stand out because they have peace when they shouldn't have peace. Why? Because we are set apart by God. That's what it means. We don't lie when lying is literally in our best interest. You still don't lie. Why don't you lie? Because the word says don't lie. What are you doing? You're standing out where people are looking at you, starting to question, what is with this guy? What is with this girl? This person is actually looks like they're set apart from the culture, from the flow of life. We don't hate when we have the reason to hate. We restrain from sexual immorality when the world embraces sexual morality because we are told to stand out away from it. The world doesn't understand that. Our culture doesn't understand it. Why would you step away from sexual immorality? It's wonderful. It's good. It's life-giving. It's thrilling. But we're Christians. We're supposed to be set apart. We are control ourselves when nobody else is controlling ourselves. And as a result, what are we doing? We're stepping, we're set and set apart. There's no more Nazarites in this world. That's an Old Testament covenant. There's nobody walking around with mops of hair. But yet we as people can stand out more than any Nazarite ever could back in the Old Testament. Just by what? These things here. Remember what set apart means? Set apart means holy. You hear these words, holy, it's almost like a cuss word in our culture. And the cuss word is almost even moved into our churches. When we think of the word holy and holiness, the word automatically comes, oh, you're talking about holiness, that means you're just judgmental. That means you're just legalistic. You know, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. That just means you're legalistic. You're not trying to be holy. It just means you're a hypocrite. That's what the words are from this word concept of holy. But what is holiness? Holiness is just being Set apart. That's all it is. It's just being set apart. When you look at the concept of holiness, I want you to look at this foundation whenever you think of holiness. 
This foundation is point number eight. Originally, mankind was created to rule the world. However, today, man does not rule the world. The world rules the man. Try to be in charge. What we try to be. We're not in charge. We're ruled. We're ruled by hate. We're ruled by suffering. We're ruled by drunkenness. We're ruled by war. We're ruled by sex. We're ruled by envy. We're ruled by greed, fear, immorality. We're ruled by power, disease, jealousy. We're ruled by selfishness. We're ruled by gluttony. We're ruled by pride. To see what takes place when sin entered into the world, we are no longer rulers of the world like God originally said we were to be, rule the world and over the land and the sea. The world rules us. And it takes us hook, line, and sinker. In fact, it is after us, and it is fueled literally by Satan to make sure it gets us. Samson was ruled by passion, consumed by desire, bound by anger, owned by sex, swallowed by culture. At the end of his life, his eyes were taken out, and he's ruined. God has a better plan. Don't be ruled by the world that wants to destroy you. Don't be ruled by the culture that wants to kill you, annihilate you. Don't be ruled by the planet and sin that literally wants to entangle you enough to throw you into the pit of hell. Don't be ruled by it. You were not created to rule by it. Stand out. Be set apart. First Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a set-apart nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into this marvelous light. Number nine, the greatest battle you'll ever fight in this world is yourself. We think the greatest battle we ever fight is our loss that happens in life. It's not our loss. We think the greatest battle is our situation. We think the greatest battle is our circumstances. We think that the greatest battle is other people. We think the greatest battle in life is our boss. We think the greatest battle in life is our economical situation and our jobs and whether we can be fed or whether things. That's not the greatest battle. We think the greatest battle is our co-worker. We think the greatest battle is our enemy. We think the greatest battle is Satan. What does Satan want to do? He wants the war inside of yourself to be lost. Those aren't the greatest battles. The greatest battle is to Rule the world. Be ruled by God in the world. That's the greatest battle. Not to be ruled by it. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. These fleshly lusts are raging war, according to that passage, against your soul. In other words, if you step away from it, It will find you. Why? Because it wants you. I came into work um, on Tuesday of last week. And I had a great weekend. I gave the vision meeting. And and I tell you, when you got the vision, you start talking about the vision of the church. You start looking at 2022. It's like, yes, we're on a mission from God. We're set apart. And we're going to implement this. And we're going to implement this. We're going to implement this. And and in my mind, I'm thinking, I can't believe that I get to be at a pulpit and work with an amazing church and, and, and guide and direct and push forward. And I will tell you that I came to work on fire with a, with a commitment, with excitement, 
with energy and with joy. And I was trying to get this thing done and that thing done and one thing done. And, and then I got this one email. And, and we get these emails often. That, and it's, um, it says, can you give a reference to so-and-so? And I looked at it and said, okay, I need to give a reference to so-and-so, a pastoral reference to so-and-so. And I looked at the name and I... <laughs> I couldn't put a face to the name. I'm like, oh, great. I can't put a face. I don't even know that person. I can't give a reference until I know that person. So what I do, what I always do is I go to Facebook, and I start searching the name. And as I'm in my office searching for the name on Facebook, I find the name, and then I, I push the name. And when I push the name, this pornographic image behind my desk came out like, whoa. Turned it off. That night, I even told my wife, I said, you know what? I, this is what happened to me. Today at work, in our church, in my office, right here. This is my excitement. And I look at this name, and I search the name. Look how I search the name. You see the email? And, and I, I don't know if it's still there or not, but, you know, push that, push that. She goes, whoa, we're at war. It is coming at us, saying, follow us. And we're in a situation, in a circumstance that we've never been in before. It creeps into the church so fast. It creeps into our homes so fast. It creeps into our life so fast. And it is there shouting, follow me. Don't follow God. Follow me. Don't follow Be set apart. Stop being taken away and swallowed by the culture. Stand above and be recognized as somebody that does not embrace the culture, but embraces God instead. God, I just thank you for calling us to be set apart. God, we look at this world and, and, and all the lies of the enemy do nothing but destroy you. Does nothing but destroy. It destroys families. It destroys individuals. It destroys countries. It destroys nations. It just destroys, 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 destroys. We thank you that your word is pure and that you've given us direction that is strong and you want us to stand in that direction. Knowing that if we do, God, it does bring life. Empower us, God, to be able to step outside of our culture, step outside of our temptations, and be ruled by you and you only. Your word is pure, your word is clean, and your word is right. And God, we need to be sold out to it. Make us a people who are sold out to it. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.